Good morning, everybody. This is Austin Griffiths coming at you on this Why I Believe series again. I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you living the old-time way? Like my wife wrote in that song, are you living the old-time way? I want to live the Bible way. That's what we're going to be talking about here on the podcast again. We want to live the Bible way. But there are some that are thinking they're living out of the Bible way, and they're twisting Scripture and omitting from Scripture. And uh, and so we have been talking about Calvinism here on the podcast on the last episode and again on this episode. We told you we was going to do two parts. We done kind of a personal testimony of Brother Shane personally on the first episode and talked about a little bit of Calvinism and just a kind of an overall introduction, I guess. And, uh, and so on this second part, without further ado, we're just going to jump right on in it. And uh, we're going to talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism, um, the hyper and soft Calvinism, the classical and Wesleyan Arminianism, and then we're going to examine the tulip. And uh, no, not a flower, but an acronym for the five, um, the five points of Calvinism um, that they use. And uh, so we're going to talk about that. Without further ado, thank you again for joining us, Brother Shane Persley. Hey, thank you, Brother. Austin's good to be back. Appreciate the invitation to come and be with y'all, be a part of the podcast and discuss this topic that uh, it's been something I've done a pretty good bit of study on. It's been important to my ministry and been part of what shaped me and got me to where I am doctrinally today. So appreciate the invitation, my friend. Yes, sir. We're definitely overjoyed to have you on the podcast to talk about this and something that um, um, I've just seen uh, around and evangelizing. We've talked about it and just something that I felt like it really needed to be addressed when we talked about why I believe this is a why I believe series. And I guess these little two parts here is a why I don't believe, I guess is kind of what we're talking about. Why I don't believe in Calvinism. And, uh, but we're just going to jump right into this. And, uh, why don't you just start out with the age old debate? Well, uh, let's, for those who, who maybe some of your listeners might be, might be kind of wondering that these terms might be something that's new to them, Calvinism, Arminianism, the Reformation movement, the Protestant movement. It might be something that are not as familiar. Yeah, that'll be so, good. The age-old age debate, you know, Al, uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism, uh, whether or not uh, God sovereignly, uh, without any without any forethought or foreknowledge of any actions that you would or would not do, elected some to salvation and elected all of the rest to eternal damnation. Um, or if uh, if as the Arminian would would tend to believe that God in his sovereignty created a world where that he proposed salvation to all of humanity through the blood of Christ and through the call of the gospel and the drawing of the spirit of God. And God created us with genuine libertarian free will, give us the ability to choose to follow Christ and be saved or to choose to, to stay in our sins and be eternally condemned. And so it's kind of, it's been, an, it's not, this is not a new debate though. It is, kind of reviving itself among our churches and, and kind of being something that's that's kind of rising. Uh, this is an old debate. Uh, Calvinism, uh, that uh, theology that was advanced by John Calvin, one of the Protestant reformers in the uh, sometime in the 16th century. Uh, the Protestant Reformation was a was a good thing. Okay. Uh, I think that churchdom in general needed something to to pull it away from Catholicism. And from the uh, from the the heresies that was being taught in the Catholic Church, but uh, contrary to popular belief, not all of the Protestants were Calvinists. And I know that the modern day Calvinists would like you to think that all of church history, all of the Protestant movement, and all of the Protestant reformers were Calvinist in their doctrine. But that's simply just not just not the truth of the matter. There were those uh, that followed John Calvin and his teachings. But there were also those that followed Jacob Arminius, who was uh, who was a 
a Dutch uh, reformer that uh, that propagated a doctrine that accepted God's sovereignty over the world, but did not uh, did not deny that God created us with the free will to uh, to accept Christ and be saved, as well as the free will to turn and walk away from from and, God uh, if they. Jacob Arminianist, if I remember correctly, he was right after John Calvin. He yeah, he was. There right, was a, yeah, Calvin was in the the late 16th century. Arminius came in early 17th century. I don't know. I don't have exact dates or anything on that. But if you start looking at, at when they lived and and all of that, uh, Jacob Jacob was kind of a. Uh, he sat back and saw the Protestant movement as a good thing, but then when he realized that a large portion of them are accepting this doctrine that is completely unbiblical, then he kind of felt the need, as 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 any righteous man would, to to rise up and try to rectify some of that and stop the spread of of certain doctrines that no doubt were creeping in churches and causing uh, causing folks to err on the other side of the road. You know, Catholicism was had all of its uh, false doctrines and heresies and things that it taught, but it is equally as false and equally as wrong. And, and in, in many regards, in my opinion, at least equally as heretical to, to propagate the things that John Calvin propagated. So our uh, Jacob Arminius kind of come in and he was among those that, that was trying to bring balance to that and, and propagate uh, he, he to assert God's sovereignty and free will being completely compatible within the biblical framework, whereas uh, Calvin felt like that human free will was not compatible with the sovereignty of God. So Dutch, uh, Dutch Arminianism um, was originally articulated uh, in something that was called the Remonstrance, was, which was in about 1610, I think. Uh, if I remember right, I wrote that down and I don't have it with me. I, I want to say when I looked at it last night, it was 1610. Uh, there was a they come up with a theological statement. You know, we've talked about the TULIP, that acronym, five points of Calvinism. Well, those five points were not originally articulated by Calvin himself, but they were articulated in response to the teachings of Arminianism. Uh, in uh, 16, I don't remember if it's 16, 15, 16, 18, 16, 19, somewhere in there, there was a, a council that was that was called the Synod of Dort. And it was a, a group of, of ministers got together to, to discuss these teachings that uh, Calvin was proposing. And I think there was about 45 Dutch reformers, if I remember right, 45 Dutch reformers that uh, were formed the remonstrance that submitted five teachings that they felt uh, five errors of this this system that uh, that Calvin was teaching. They submitted five doctrines, five statements, made five points that have, some assertions that that then the Calvinists turned around. John Calvin did not do this. John Calvin didn't come up with the tulip. The Calvinists that followed him did. They took the five points that the Armenians were articulating, and then they turned around and tried to articulate their own five points. Let me give you those, if it'll be okay. Uh, the five main points that were asserted by the Armenians. Uh, number one, that election was conditioned by the rational or non rational faith or non-faith of each person. In other words, uh, as Paul said, that we were predestined uh, According to foreknowledge, God knowing who would and who would not believe that the election of God was conditioned on the rational, libertarian decision that would be made, faith or otherwise, uh, that was their their primary point. That that in other words, that election was not unconditional. Okay, uh, they also stated that the atonement, while qualitatively adequate for all humans was efficacious only for the persons who put their faith in Christ, meaning that Christ's blood was shed for all persons, but the only ones who could enjoy that uh, atonement was those who put their faith in Christ. The third point that the Armenians articulated was that those who were uh, who were to respond to God's will could not do so if they were unaided by the Holy Spirit. They asserted that grace was not irresistible, 
They stated that believers are not able to resist sin. Uh, believers are able to resist sin and are not beyond the possibility of falling from grace. So at the Synod of Dort, those men who were uh, kind of in charge of that council despised these teachings. They felt like that election was unconditional, that the atonement was limited, uh, that grace was irresistible, and that the believers could not fall from grace and could not resist sin. And so they condemned uh, those remonstrants. They persecuted them politically and physically at times. Uh, even John Calvin, to the dismay of many of the Calvinists today that don't know what to do with it, even John Calvin would would stand in uh, and justify the capital punishment of those who disagreed with him. There was uh, some of them were put to death. And John Calvin was among those who who felt as if it was justified and even called it God's sovereign will that they be put to death because they disagreed with the doctrines that he that he proponed. And that sure sounds like a kind of person I want to follow his doctrine, somebody that would condemn me to death because I disagreed with him. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. If you don't believe so, me, you're going to die. You're going to die. If you don't believe like <laughs> I do, brother, we're going to, we're going to hang you. Could you imagine the day we're living in? Uh, if, if, uh, if we just disagreed, I'm, you know, we're part of the holiness movement, brother, and it's no secret that we've got our differences uh, among our own selves, depending on what part of the country you live in. But uh, could you imagine me condemning you to death for, for some, from some strain of difference that uh, I don't know. I just, that just does not, does not sound like someone who, genuinely understands the scriptures to me enough to be articulating a doctrine of salvation. It's just right. my just well, two cents. The simplest thing is we're supposed to be Christ-like. That don't sound very Christ-like. Not at all. So, you know, with that being said, you know, the, the Arminians articulated their five points. Calvinists come back. They articulated their five points. And, uh, you know, the TULIP, the, the acronym that you alluded to, Total Depravity, Unconditional, election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, they come back. And, and so there's been this debate that has raged for years. This that's going on now between us and the Calvinists, it's not new. We have been, this has been debated since the, the late 1600s, early 1700s. And uh, it's, uh, it's a debate that I suspect is not going to be resolved uh, anytime soon, but it is one that, that we need to engage ourselves in and not act like doesn't exist because it is it is affecting our churches and we're going to continue to lose people out of our churches if we don't uh, if we don't know how to adequately defend our positions on these points. I remember a while back we was talking you was telling me that these doctrines were just coming in not only to our movement but in other denominations and just trying to you know infiltrate what people believe. Yeah. Well, it's even uh, you know there are some denominational affiliations that attempt to, they have always articulated a, a Calvinistic position, okay? They've always stated that Calvinism was their, was kind of their thing. But, uh, you know, Presbyterians, um, uh, a lot of uh, Episcopalians and different ones, they've always kind of been Calvinist at their core. And there have always been a group of Baptist churches who were Calvinistic to some extent. But the Southern Baptist Convention has always mm -hmm. For the most part, leaned in more in a more Armenian direction, with the exception of of uh, of the once saved always saved. Uh, they they adhere to that, whereas most Armenians would not. Um, but even among, I've got friends that pastor Southern Baptist churches, and it is a raging debate right now in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, as to whether or not the convention is going to. Uh, move more in a Calvinistic direction, or are they going to stay more in a libertarian free will direction? And uh, it's affecting uh, it's affecting a lot of their churches. I have Methodist friends that pastor in the Congregational Methodist organizations, and they are Wesleyan Armenian to the to the core. But there are Calvinistic teachings coming in among those Wesleyan Methodist churches, Congregational Methodist churches, and they're contending with it just like we are. So uh, why don't you just take us into the kind of the difference between uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. You talked about there's hyper and there's soft and there's classical and there's Wesleyan as far as Arminianism. Yes. So what, what what's kind of the difference? And then once we get through that, I want to kind of 
go through and uh, just kind of go through Tulip. Just kind of tear down one letter at a time. All right. So, you know, in all fairness, not all Calvinists are created equal. There are those who would be considered hyper-Calvinists who are those, the ones who would be considered hyper-Calvinists would be those that would say that God in his sovereignty dictates everything. Uh, not only does he dictate who will be saved and who won't be saved, but he dictates who the child molester will be. He dictates who the murderer will be. He dictates who the uh, who the homosexual will be. He dictates all things, including who who goes who is elected to heaven, but also who is unconditionally elected to hell. So that would be kind of the kind of the hyper Calvinist that God is absolutely determining every single action including the sinful actions. He created those persons sinful, and they sin because that is the nature that God created them in. And so there are some hyper-Calvinists that do propagate a doctrine like that. Um, but in fairness, there are some what is being termed by by some theologians as soft Calvinists. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a soft Calvinist, and what they what they propone in soft Calvinism is more of a that God created you with a certain nature and that you have no choice but to to act in accordance with the with the nature that God gave you. And so it is still in some way deterministic that God created you with this nature and you're going to you're going to succumb to the gospel because God created you with a nature that would be softened to it, or you will reject the gospel and be condemned to hell because that's the nature God gave you. Still at the end of the day, it still makes God uh, the determiner of whether or not you go to heaven or hell, but there is there are softer and hyper versions of it. Arminianism, when we talk about that, there are a couple of different branches of Arminianism. There is the classical branch that I don't agree with everything that they teach, and that's not what we're talking about today, so I can't really dive into that, but the more classical line did leave way some of the men who adhered to more classical Arminianism would be those who would who would have a little more liberal mindset concerning sin, and they would be a little more more likely to like the Southern Baptists to to disagree with the Calvinist on the first four points, but come to where they would agree with the Calvinist on the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved. So that would kind of the classical Arminian, the Wesleyan Arminianism which should be of much interest to most of the Pentecostal holiness people that might be listening to your podcast, would be those who would adhere to the Arminianism that was propagated by John Wesley uh, in, the, uh, in his doctrines uh, that, uh, that put much more emphasis, the Wesleyan branch of Arminianism put much more emphasis on sanctification, personal holiness, uh, the righteous life, the responsibility that we have to live righteously and holy. Um, that would be more of the branch that we, uh, that me and you would probably lean more towards. So, so that kind of give you just a little bit of a, of a, of a breakdown of that. So I guess we can talk about Tulip. You ready for that? Yes, sir. All right. Let's, so we've, we've talked about it. We've alluded to it. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. None of these doctrines do I think have biblical validity? Um, so when we talk about total depravity, as defined by the Calvinist, the Calvinist defines total depravity not as the depravity that affects the nature of man. We would agree that that we have a sinful had a sinful nature, that we were born with that original sin, with that nature that that caused us to have the propensity to sin. We were depraved in our nature. But the Calvinist defines total depravity as being depraved, not only in the point where you have a propensity to sin, but you can't do anything but sin. You can't stop yourself from sinning. And your depravity affects the entirety. That's why they call it total depravity. It affects the entirety of the man, even your ability to to make a decision to receive or or reject the gospel of God. the Calvinists would teach in total depravity that that man is so sinful and that he is so depraved that even given the opportunity to be saved by the Lord, you couldn't do it in and of yourself. You could not make the decision. You're so sinful. You're so lost. You don't have the ability to respond 
to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I think that primarily is is false, brother, is is because are are we to are we to say that this Bible that we preach and that we that we that we propagate our sermons from that in so many places Jesus says, "Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden." Uh, repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Are we to really believe that we're so depraved that God would tell us to put our faith in Christ? God would tell us to come unto him. God would tell us to come out from among the world. God would tell us to lay aside the sin and the weight that does so easily beset us. He'd tell us to do it, but we can't do it. I just, I think that that, that, that doctrine in and of itself uh, says that God is commanding you to be holy God is commanding you not to sin. God is commanding you to accept Christ and be saved. But total depravity says, though God commands you to do it, you can't do it. And I just I think that I think that is very problematic is from just a plain reading of the text and a plain a plain reading of the scriptures. You can't come to the place where you believe that God would tell you to do something that you could not do. It's like John Calvin had the idea that God made us as a bunch of robots and he programmed some of us to do good and some of us to do bad and dictates everything we do. Not only did he create the sinner that's going to be eternally lost, but he also chose their sin for them. Just almost, I was reading the other day um, about a writer that was talking about hyper-Calvinism and was mainly saying that the, the belief, the best way to put it, was a puppet master. Just basically... You know, anybody that knows what a puppet show is, you know, with them little, the old time puppet time where they had the the big wooden handles and the big strings that come down and, you know, you make your puppet do whatever it does. It can't do nothing on its own. That's kind of what this writer um, was talking about, um, John Calvin. Yeah. And, you know, and then basically you have to look at it from the point that that when you when you realize that's what they're propagating, though, they don't want to say it like that. That is what they're saying. It makes God the author of sin. And, and because God, God, if God determines, completely determines everything, then he determines who's going to sin and who's not going to sin. And you just that's very problematic when you, you know, you, it's, it's almost like laying the accusation at the feet of God that God's sin is your fault. You created me this way. I can't do anything any different. I can't make any decisions because you made me this way. And that that makes God the author of sin. If God is like that puppet master controlling everything, then the man that's out cheating on his wife is controlled by God. The man that's out uh, abusing children is, is, is controlled by God. And brother, I just, I can't believe that. I just, that's completely contrary to the nature of God. Well, you lose all the scriptures where Jesus said, whosoever will, whosoever will come, anybody, anybody and everybody, whosoever. And then uh, like in John chapter eight, um, it reminded me where they brought the woman caught in an adultery to Jesus. And he told her, he said, neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I condemn thee. And he said, go and sin no more. If there, yeah. you know, if this was right, he'd be like, well, you know, neither do I condemn thee. Go and keep on sinning. <laughs> you know, that's not what it yeah. said. It said, go and sin no more. And it goes on sin to say no just a couple of verses later, whosoever committed sin is a servant of sin. I do believe in the depravity of man. I do believe we have a depraved nature. I just do not think that that depravity is so extensive that it prevents us from responding to God. And I think that would be the essential difference in Arminianism and Calvinism. The Calvinist says that we are so depraved we can't even respond to God. Arminianism would say that, yes, we're depraved. Yes, we have a sinful nature. But our, we have that prevenient grace, that grace that's given to us by God beforehand that, that, that is given to all men. Grace of God appeared to all men. And so, you know, we have the ability to respond to him. Okay, so let's move on to the second letter. Yeah. Um, let, let, let's go on to unconditional election. I'm sure, and I want to say right here, we're kind of moving through this quickly. I know me and Brother Shane already talked about it. We could, he could probably talk about this forever. Um, yeah. 
and so we don't want to take up four and five, six episodes talking about this. We've got all kinds of other topics to talk about, but I wanted to give him these two episodes to just to refute Calvinism really is the main, the main thing of what we're doing here and uh, to try to hopefully maybe wake somebody up, maybe somebody that's in this or has heard about it or somebody that's actively in a church that believes this and just let you know that this is false and so uh, we're just he's he's quickly just going through tulip, and I know um, we both uh, I don't, I've got a book on my shelf right now of 150 pages just going through these five letters, and uh, yeah, and and so we could go through it for a long time, but let, let's move to unconditional election. So unconditional election is the is the doctrine that teaches that God elected some to salvation and and the others to damnation based on no decision whatsoever that he saw in them, that God just uh, arbitrarily selected some for no reason, not, not because of any faith that he saw in them or any, uh, any, any repentance that he saw, any heart to repent in them, but completely, totally, arbitrarily, he just selected some to salvation. Predestined. And, and predestined some to salvation, and the rest are, by default, elected to hell. Um I think that, in my opinion, where where as I have studied election, and I'll just give this very briefly because, like you said, we don't want to go too long. But I think the difference in in Calvin's perspective of election and what I think is a biblical perspective of election is Calvin focuses and the Calvinist focuses too much on God selecting the individual. When I think that is if you study election in the scriptures it is quite clear to me that election has little to do with the individual and is more corporate and christiocentric in nature than than what the calvinists would seem to be what i mean by that is is that those that are elect that are elected are those who are in christ those who are a part of the body of christ those who are a part of the body of believers. They are the elect of God. It is it is a term that is used to speak of that corporate body and, and those it is Christocentric in the sense that the only those who are in Christ are a part of the elect. So it's it's kind of like it's kind of like and, and I know this is a very simplistic view, but I don't know any other way to explain it at this particular point, but it's almost like it's almost like the group, if you if you imagine a group the group is the elect. You know, it's, it speaks of that body as a whole is the elect. But there's got to be a way that you get into that group, that you get into that elect group. And we know that the scriptures are quite clear that the way into Christ, the way into the church, the way into the body of Christ is through repentance and faith. Well, repentance and faith is a, is a responsibility of the human, not something that God does for you. God doesn't make you repent. He calls you to repentance. So the responsibility is on you. So I would say that election is not unconditional in the sense that it is the arbitrary election of some individuals to salvation and others to damnation, but rather that it, it deals with the corporate body of Christ in a Christocentric fashion that is conditioned on the faith that God knows. Even, even Paul writes it and said that we were predestined according to the foreknowledge of God. The Calvinists would say that it was not according to anything that God foresaw or foreknow. You have to completely, totally ignore Paul's words to say that. Christ knows because he is omniscient. He has all knowledge of all things that will transpire in all ages. God knew when exactly that Brother Austin Griffiths would get saved. God knew that he would put his faith in him. God knew. And if I am to be a part of the elected body of God, it is because God knew what I would and would not do. And uh, and so that that is kind of the approach that I take, focusing mostly on the corporate Christocentric uh, nature of election, that it is it deals more with the body of Christ as a whole that is centered in Christ and that that predestination comes uh, from the knowledge that God has of the faith that we will have in the future. So that's kind of unconditional election in a nutshell. And so that moves us to limited atonement. And uh, I know we're this moving is, through these kind of quickly. And, uh, yeah. and so limited atonement, 
I think in itself, without even diving into it, just those two words of limited atonement is enough to tell you it's wrong. It, it is it is the single most disgusting doctrine of the tulip, in my opinion. It quite simply says that the the doctrine of limited atonement that that God this all it all builds on each other. Total depravity builds builds on the next point because we're completely totally depraved, cannot respond to God. Then God has unconditionally elected some to salvation and the rest to hell. And since He unconditionally elected some, the atonement, the blood of Christ that was shed, and the atonement that was made was only made for that elect body. Essentially, what they are saying is that Christ did not die for the sins of the world, as the scriptures teach, that he did not die for the sins of all of humanity, but that he died only for the sins of the elect. It is limited. It was not It was not strong enough. It was not powerful enough to save everybody, but only to save a limited few. And I just think that it is... It is a horrible doctrine. Uh, I think that I think that it is uh, it, it is, in my opinion, the worst of all of the doctrines of the tulip is that Christ's blood was shed not for the sins of all of the world, but simply for the sins of a few. And I, I just think that it uh, I think that it, even even those that I know who are soft Calvinists, I've got a friend that he calls himself a three and a half point Calvinist. <laughs> he, he completely believes in total depravity. He believes in unconditional election. He believes in the perseverance of the saints. He kind of halfway believes in irresistible grace, but he totally 100%. He's a Calvinist by, by confession, but he dis, he despises the, the, the doctrine of limited atonement. And I think that uh, anybody with any, with any biblical sense or any common sense for that fact would as well. And then there is, uh, uh, you know, limited atonement kind of, kind of leads into the irresistible grace. I'm just going to move quickly through this, brother. I know we're pressing time here, but uh, grace, they say grace is irresistible. If God, if God has unconditionally elected you, when he decides to draw you to himself, you could not reject him. You could not turn from him. You could not refuse to accept the gospel. And we just don't see that in the scriptures. And we even see God in, in places stretching his hands out to them Look at Christ in 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 the Gospels, stretching his hands out over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou who killest the prophets and stoned them. How often would I have drawn you under my wings as a hen doth her brood? But what does he say? But ye would not. Well, if God was drawing them and if Christ was genuinely saying, I would have drawn you to myself, then what is he? What is he even that just it almost sounds illogical that Christ would turn around and say, ye would not, if the if the bottom line is grace was irresistible and they could not resist. It's just it's just not biblical, brother. Grace, grace can be rejected. It's offered to all men, but that's why it's called the gift of grace. A gift has to be received. It has to be accepted. It has to be brought into and received. You could you could buy me something if you just if you just want to, Brother Austin, Christmas is gonna come up in twenty twenty two. If you just want to buy me buy me a good Christmas present, I will let you, brother, buy me what you want to. But you can go spend good money on something that's a present, a gift for me, and say, Brother Shane, I've got you something for Christmas. I want to give it to you. I want you to have it. I'm not going to take no for an answer, but at the end of the day, if I tell you no and just even if you try to force it in my hands, all I've got to do is drop it, turn around and walk off from it. That's how grace is. Grace is a gift. It is freely given, but it must also be freely received. And so the doctrine of irresistible grace, in my opinion, is incompatible with the scriptures because we see over and again men rejecting Christ, men turning from him, men resisting the gospel of God. Well, if this was correct— you know, from a preacher's perspective, you know, preach on sin, preach to the lost. You know, we preach, you know, you got to get saved, come out of your sin, you want to be saved, you don't want to go to hell. What would be the point in preaching to the lost if some people are predestined to go to hell anyways? And then the ones yeah. that are predestined to be saved, there's irresistible grace. They're going to be saved. It don't matter what you do. They're going to be saved. What would be the point in the, of even preaching? And the whole well, Bible, is, the the whole New Testament, the whole is about preaching. How how should they hear without a preacher? 
Jesus, you know, he, he's preaching to the lost. He's telling everybody, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. It, it just don't make any sense whatsoever. Well, you know, we talked about the practical implications of this next point, the perseverance of the saints, the once saved, always saved doctrine, that if you get saved, you'll never fall from grace. We've talked about those, you know, a little bit uh, prior to that, so we won't spend as much time on it here, but we've talked about you know, that doctrine breeds the mentality into people that I could sin and no matter what I do, I'm going to go to heaven. Well, there are practical implications to all of these doctrines, the irresistible grace and what it winds up doing. Brother, I know reformed churches that do not have altars and do not make altar calls because what's the point? You know, I, I used to work with a primitive Baptist who uh, they are very Calvinistic in their doctrine. And he told me he thought altar calls were of the, I worked with a, he was a primitive Baptist deacon. And uh, he, he told me he thought altar calls were of the devil oh my because goodness. you are, you are trying to call people to do something that they can't do if God has not elected them. And so you've got these practical implications. If you really do believe that, then these men are up just preaching intellect- intellectually. They're great expositors. They're great at walking through the scriptures and giving you the historical background and what Paul might have meant this and what this Hebrew word means. But they're horrible evangelists because if you really believe that men are so depraved that they could not respond to God, that they will not come to Christ unless they're unconditionally elected, that Christ didn't even die for them if they're not elected, that if they are elected, God will irresistibly draw them to himself. And if he draws them, they'll get saved and stay saved from now on. If you really believe that, what is the point in the altar call? And so that's why many of them have quit. They don't give altar calls. They don't. Call What's the point in even repeat. going to church? If you're I, saved, they, you don't they, even have to go, you know, you don't even go to church anymore. You don't have to do anything. Yeah, they, they, uh, I guess they feel like that that's just their way to worship or their way to glorify God and just, just glad that they get to be in the club, I guess, because they, <laughs> they're not, they're not evangelizing and they're certainly not, they're certainly not reaching out to the lost and dying world and they're not preaching a gospel that's going to hold the world accountable. If what they're preaching is that uh, you can't do anything to respond to God anyway, if God didn't elect you. So I don't know. I don't know what their point is, but it is uh, it is uh, is unbiblical altogether, in my opinion. They might have a deacon that's a drunk and they might have a, you know, instrumentalist that are uh, unfaithful to their spouse. And they might have, you know, who knows what a drug addict, um, you know, within offices of the church that are not saved at all. They they're habitually sinning. But they're teaching that, you know, they prayed through when they was seven years old at youth camp. So, you know, it don't matter what they do now, they're saved. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, I just it's hard to believe that there are people out there that really think. And I go back to what I said, maybe in the last episode, that really think that the nature of God is such that he would just pick a handful out, take them to heaven, condemn the rest to hell, make them sinners and then judge them for their sin. When 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 God didn't give me any option to do any different, I just think that 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 is completely incompatible with the character of God that we see revealed in the scriptures, a God that that loves the sinner, that is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the will of God, that all would come to repentance. And I think that uh, I think that the Wesleyan Armenian view better articulates that that that. And, and I'm not trying to just promote that necessarily. But that is that is what I lean towards Wesleyan Arminianism, the doctrine that that not only says that we have the free will and ability to choose, but that God has provided uh, the means for us to do so, that God allows for us to make our own choices and our own decisions as far as whether we will accept or reject him. And, And beyond that, that he also gives us the ability to choose whether or not we're going to continue in sin, be sanctified, live righteous, live holy, that God has called us to crucify the outward man, to, to lay down the sins of the flesh and to be holy unto him. And uh, I think Calvinism is is uh, completely opposite of that. And well, Romans, unbiblical in my opinion. Romans 10 and 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2 and 21, And if, and if shall come to pass, so whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the whole Bible is preaching to us, whosoever. John three sixteen, 
I mean, how do you refute that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And uh, I, I couldn't fathom going to a church and no altar call, um, no altar. I mean, that that's just unbelievable, Brother Shane, to even think that somebody, you know, to me, it just, you know, to, to us, it just seems like common sense. You know, but I guess to folks that don't, you know, don't know or whatever, but I guess the goal of this episode is, you know, there might be somebody somehow or another that is Calvinistic and and don't know nothing else. Maybe that something you said will enlighten them. Maybe they'll go to do what you did. Maybe they'll get to study in the scriptures and realize that, hey, none of this matches up. I mean, they're, they're not even hardly close. None of this matches up. And then, you know, maybe there's somebody within the Pentecostal holiness movement that maybe is being pulled that direction. Maybe there's another church down the road or a split or whatever that, you know, is pulling them into a more Calvinistic doctrine or more Calvinistic beliefs. And you know why that is, is that is because it appeals to the flesh, that the flesh and the devil are identical twins, one man said. You know, the flesh, that's why Paul said, I died daily. We've got to kill this flesh out. I was just praying this afternoon right here in my office. God, kill Austin. Kill myself out. You know, the flesh wants to sin. We have inherited sin within us. We've got to be saved. We've got to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's got to cleanse our sins away. And if they're not, then you're not saved. You're not going to make it to heaven. And the sad thing is to think that there are people that may go to a Calvinistic church their entire life and come down to their funeral like you already said to us, and they preach them right into heaven. Preach them right into heaven. And the fact was they was a rotten sinner that went to a devil's hell. Yeah. I think God, uh, in, in his foreknowledge, brother, I think he knew that this debate would be one that would, would pull on people and that would be of some some significance throughout and i think that it, and i've always found it completely compelling in this argument that if you look in the last chapter of the bible when god goes to conclude it concluding the holy writ that uh, there is one final invitation uh revelation 22 and 17 and the spirit and the bride say come why would the spirit and the bride say come if you could not come let him that heareth say, come, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Let him do it freely. He's not compelled. He's not forced. He's not unconditionally elected. The invitation is given, and it is freely available for any man to take. And I think that, that uh, that's that's the way God concluded the the, the revelation, the scriptures, and and that's where I, I lay my that's where I lay my argument at that God wants us to freely take of that water of life. You know, I often thought, you know, God is omniscient. God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything. And so when Noah was building an ark, you know, when we go look into the details, read the scripture, he preached 120 years. There was a 120 year time clock on mankind. And so when you get to reading through them scriptures, you know, uh, it was about 70 to 80 years he built the ark. And he preached 120. But nobody was on that ark except for eight people. Noah's wife, his three sons, his three daughter-in-laws, and all those animals. God had gave the dimensions of the ark very early into, I guess you would say, into the time clock. You know, there was about... 80 years left on the time clock. 80 years Noah had left to preach. He had already preached for, I mean, I, I, I'm roughly guesstimating, but it was around, you know, we don't know for sure. It was around 70 to 80 years, roughly. Um, but yeah. there were still many years for Noah to preach. Why wasn't there, you know, hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of converts? He didn't have any converts to come to his ministry, but the ark's dimensions was already given because God and his omniscience already knew that there was going to be eight people on that ark, and that's it. But in yeah. the free will of man and in the love of God, Noah was still preaching the whole time. He could have told Noah, 
Don't even worry about preaching. Just build you an ark. You're the only ones that's going to make it anyways. God already knew that. In his foreknowledge, he already knew there was only going to be eight people on the ark. Yet Noah stood and preached and preached and preached and preached and pulled and pulled, got ridiculed, laughed at, mocked, made fun of, and then at the end of the day, only him and his family was in the ark, like we said. But he still preached. He still preached. He still preached because we have a free will. We're not robots. We have a free will. So, yes, God knows everything, but he didn't predestine us before we was ever born to go to heaven or hell. Yes, I have to say he knows if we're going to go to heaven or hell. I remember one story. There's a pastor not too far from here. He's long gone now. And uh, but there was two women that was in that church and that man of God, those two women walked out um, of the church service. And that man of God said, the Holy Ghost just spoke to me and said, one of those women will be lost forever. And God knows he knows. But yet God will send that same salvation message to that service to pull on somebody knowing they're going to reject him. And, you know, when it comes to the judgment someday, the sinners will go to the great white throne judgment. The saved will go to the judgment seat of Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 5, the great white throne, according to Revelation 20, they'll give an account for the time they got saved, whether it be in the judgment seat of Christ, or they'll give an account of all the times. You know, the great white throne judgment, I truly believe that Jesus, the judge, you know, he's a lamb, but at that moment, he's going to be a lion. And him, the lion, the judge, he's going to come out and tell you, I dealt with you, and I dealt with you, and I gave you this chance, and this chance, and this message, and this sermon, and this time to get saved. And yes, so yes, God knows everything. God knows whether you're going to be saved or lost. But the Calvinistic doctrine that he predestined you is just nonsense. Yes, sir. I agree. I agree. And I remember one pastor said this, and we'll try to jump off here. But one pastor said, um, if the devil fights you, and I think, you know, if you was in a church service right now and you say, how many people raise your hand if the devil's ever fought you? I think every single person would raise their hand unless they're lying. The devil fights everybody. I think that right there proves Calvinism is not right. I agree, bro. I agree. Why would the devil fight something to try to get them to fall if they're going to be with him for an eternity in hell forever? Anyways. Or I should say, if he knows you're, once you get saved and repent of your sins, you're going to be saved the rest of your life, what's the point of even fighting you? That's a waste of time. He's going to go fight somebody else. He knows you're going to be saved forever. But no, he, he fights. He fights because he knows you can backslide, because he knows you can mess up. And if he can get you backslid, then you might be able to get you lost for all eternity. The devil knows you can backslide. I think that proves that Calvinism's not right. And everybody that's listening, I think can attest that the devil has fought them. Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, as a closing remark, Brother Shane, is there anything you would like to say to uh, maybe somebody that's battling with uh, Calvinism that's pulling on them? What kind of advice would you give to them as we close here? Um, you, I mean, you, you're you a prime example. That's what you did. You came out of it. How? how what, what advice do you give somebody to come out of it? So I, I genuinely believe, brother, that if you're not, if you're not taught Calvinism, you won't come to Calvinism. You have to learn that. So I genuinely believe that if a person really wants to know what the Bible teaches, just sit down and read the Bible. Quit listening to John MacArthur. Quit listening to Steve Lawson. Quit listening to Legionnaire Ministries. Quit listening to R.C. Sproul. Quit reading all of that stuff. If you if you're struggling with it, listening to it is not, you know, being taught that is not what you need to do. Sit down and read the Bible. See if you think that the nature of God is one that loves everybody and all the world and calls everybody, because just a plain, simple reading of the scriptures will not take you to Calvinism. It will bring you to, to what we have articulated here, that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everybody, that he invites everybody, and only those who repent and believe the gospel will be saved in the end, and those who live holy and separated from the world. And if you just take, just, just sit down with your Bible, read those passages, get a concordance, look up the scriptures that deal with backsliding, that deal with apostasy, with, that deal with faith and repentance and salvation and how a person gets saved and, and what God's expectation. Just read the Bible 
And if you will just take the Bible for what it says, you will come to many of the same conclusions, if not all of the same conclusions we have. And uh, it because I, I genuinely believe that you have to learn Calvinism. It's not it's not the plain rendering of the Scripture. I think you'll uh, if you just if you just plainly read it, you'll come somewhere close to to Wesleyan Arminianism. You may not like something altogether or see something a little bit different, but you'll come close to it. And quite frankly, I also believe, I know this ain't what we're talking about, but I also believe that if you read the scriptures just plainly and take them what they say, you'll come out of Pentecostal holiness, brother. (laughs) That's exactly right. Well, thank you, Brother Shane, for coming on the podcast and addressing this topic of Calvinism. I hope it has helped somebody. I hope it's touched somebody's life. And um, even if you're not dealing with it, I hope it's just gave you more of an understanding of what it is. And so if it does pop up, you'll say, hey, that's false doctrine. That's not right. Hey, brother, I appreciate you coming on. We have mentioned it, but it might be a good idea to suggest it. Uh, There is a book written by one of our preachers called Tackling the Tulip. It is written by Brother Grant Ralston. Uh, Those in our movement will know Brother Ryan Ralston well. His son, Grant, and his father, Brother Ed Ralston wrote a book together called Tackling the Tulip. You can get it on Amazon. It's where I got my copy. It is an excellent book for anybody that wants some further resources and wants to kind of dive into the scriptures and, and get a little more detailed than what we've been able to do. I yes. think that book, recommending that book, would be an excellent resource, Tackling the Tulip by Brother Grant Ralston. Yes, we just talked. Um, Brother Shane just talked to us for just a a little bit on this podcast about it, but if you want to get more extensive, um, that book, I'm looking at it right now, sitting on my shelf, uh, about 130 pages or so, um, r- plenty of references, plenty of scripture. Yeah. I've read it from cover to cover. I do, I do read <laughs> and it's a, it is a very good book, very well written, very well recommended. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, we're sorry we've went a little long, and uh, but we felt like just trying to get it all out there. And I want to say a thank you again to Brother Shane Persley in Southern Alabama. And uh, thank you thank for you, being able to share your testimony and just going in through this and hopefully to help somebody. And uh, I tell you, if you've got some feedback from this, you can send it to us at 2Ps21 at yahoo.com, T-W-O-P-E-A-S-2-1 at yahoo.com. And if you've got something you want to say to Brother Shane from this episode, you can put it there, and I will make sure it gets to him. And especially if it's any criticism, I'll definitely make sure I get it to him. (laughs) Send it on, brother. Send it on. (laughs) Oh, we're good friends. I'm just carrying on. Brother Shane, appreciate you coming. And uh, I tell you what, just thank everybody. And uh, stay tuned for more of the Why I Believe series. we got more topics to address more special uh, speakers guests I should say that's going to be on with us and then of course me and brother Zach will be together again to talk about some other things so keep listening to the first and third Thursdays of the month we'll see you later in this race of life I've run the Lord says to me my child well done there will be no regrets for me I'll be living